Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Challoner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Joanne Roebuck. Joanne is the Clinical Director at Care Fertility, one of the world's leading providers of fertility treatment, genetic diagnosis and screening techniques and associated fertility preservation procedures. Joanne, very warm welcome to you today and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the programme. Thank you. Thank you, Joanne. Um, The purpose of this discussion is, of course, first and foremost, to establish your take on leadership. So if we take that word leader aside for a second and just consider that in a little bit more depth first, I'm interested to understand what that word actually means to you. What should a leader be in your eyes? Mm. Well, I think it's a person who um, inspires people um, to move forward um, towards a a common goal. Um, A leader, as far as I can see, somebody who's got good communication, who sort of inspires um, honesty and has got a positive attitude. Um, And as far as I'm concerned, being a leader is is somebody who um, has a positive role that they will sort of inspire their own team, bring the team onwards. It's very much a team approach Mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned. Um, And, you know, without the people behind me, um, I can't make the business work. But it, it's just been about fairness. It's been about in creativity and inspiring people. And one of the great things I find is that um, people motivation and staff motivation um, and, and sort of you know creating um, an environment, particularly in my field, where we deliver you know the best quality service that we can to our patients. And you say, therefore, that your own leadership model as a result of those ideals is very inclusive and very team orientated then? It is. I mean, nobody, I think, is an island. Um, I think that, you know, you without a good team behind you, um, you can't progress forward. And particularly in healthcare, you, you need a good team under you. And you need a very strong senior management team, which I'm very fortunate that I've got. But, you know, it, it is inspiring people. It's... Um, you know, looking for people who've got those qualities, looking at people who are very well motivated, who've got a positive attitude. And once you've got like all the same sort of um, way forward, you've got the direction. And the thing about a leader is, is directing people. It's not micromanaging people. Mm. It's giving them the qualities um, and also guiding them. You know, I've been a senior manager for far too long, I like to think about, um, in healthcare. And it's putting my experience forward. Um, and just, as I say, guiding them, not not telling them what to do, but, but giving them some pointers and discussing uh, how they can improve things or how they should deal with certain situations. And there's nothing more sort of satisfying for me to see um, somebody who's, who's not been a manager before be a manager um, and do a really good job. And it's about feeding back to them about sort of the, you know the way that they handle situations and how we can do things better. Um, and I'm always a person that thinks, you know, I'm quite optimistic that we can always do things a lot better and we can improve and um, learn lessons when things don't go so well. Um, but, um, yeah, it, it, it's about the inspiring of a team, to be fair. 
Mm. It's about sort of striking that balance, isn't it, between guiding people but not sort of being over their shoulder constantly, letting them sort of try things for themselves, letting them develop in their own right. And it's an important part of um, sort of developing into a good employee but also a good leader, isn't it, that experience of trying things for yourself, maybe getting one or two things wrong along the way and then just embracing the learning curves. Absolutely. So, I mean, I, I, you know, I remember when I was a very young manager when I first started out and, um, you know, the people who were guiding me, you know, there, there were some people who would um, be a bit like a bull in a china shop and would be saying, you know, this is what you need to do. And they, they were looking and um, micromanaging everything I, I, I did. But then I had other role models who were, it was a guide and that that's what I needed because also you need to feel you've got ownership of the role you know, that's what you're getting paid for. That is, you know, your job. It's it's all about your responsibility and job satisfaction. And I think you've got something, when you've got somebody there who is a go-to person, uh, but also, you know, meets regularly with you, which is what I do. I do that with my managers. We sit down, you know, for 30 minutes um, over a coffee and we talk about sort of what things have gone right, what things have gone wrong, how they're going to manage a certain situation. Um, I'll give them, you know, my guidance. I'm not telling them how to do it, but it, it's all, you know, it's, it's the encouragement and give them the confidence um, to do that. And it, it is also about giving sort of constructive feedback as well and being fair. Uh, and also, I think that's when they'll respect you as a manager yourself. In that, you know, you are, as I, as I said before, guiding them. You're not over the shoulder. You're not breathing down the neck. You are giving them, you know, the scale that they can actually go ahead and, you know, manage their own situation. And as as far as I'm concerned, I think that is what sort of gives people that sort of encouragement and, and job satisfaction at the end of the day. And I think leadership as a whole is something that we've needed more than ever during this period, isn't it, with the emergence of COVID-19, no less, and the need for business leaders, leaders of organisations, institutions, governments, of course, to step up and really guide their way through this uh, pandemic situation. Tell me, Joanne, for somebody working within healthcare such as yourself, um, how has it been navigating the last few weeks and months? Because I can imagine that it's been a tremendous challenge um, on your side of things as well. Yeah, it certainly has. I mean, I've never come across anything, you know, it's 30 odd years of, of senior management in healthcare like this before. It's a complete unique situation. Um, I never ever thought I'd have to furlough staff uh, and be in that position. Um, but, but conversely as well, it, it's brought out a great teamwork spirit. Um, I work with all my senior managers. We came into the clinic, you know, we decided that we would, um, you know, look after the, the, the business, look after the patients, uh, and try and manage the situation. And, and fortunately, as I say, we, we've got a very strong um, connection between us all, and we were able to do that. And um, as I say, trying to deal with people's expectations, particularly in our field, um, where patients aren't particularly ill, but it's a chosen um, healthcare provider that we that we're trying to do but it's also as I say you know you've got people who are very frustrated uh, as our patients and trying to manage their expectations but um we, you know we've, we've done a lot of positive um things as well we've uh we've gone paper light so everything that we do now is electronic and we did that in this pandemic which perhaps before we would not have had the time to be able to do that um so sort of 
properly in one in one sense. And so we, we've come out, we've made lots of changes, all for the better, I hope. Um, but, you know, we've, we've actually moved forward as well. So but there has been some positive that's come out of this. Mm, certainly in that sense of national unity um, that's one thing uh, the way that it's galvanized everybody and brought people together that's mm-hmm. also incredibly positive as you've said i think people have really brought the best out of themselves in times um, of adversity such as this but also that renewed focus on the importance of mental health and well-being during this time um, as well is also incredibly important um just how yeah. sort of important do you think that is within leadership joanne mental health um considering of course looking after your own looking after that of your colleagues and especially at a time such as this, where people do ultimately react to different circumstances differently. Hmm. I think, yes, it's been paramount, to be quite honest, because because it is such a unique situation, one that we can't control, um, one that was changing on a daily basis. And so for me, as a leader, my job is to support, that's what I had to do, support all the staff, be there, <clears throat> be a smart support mechanism for them at all times, talk regularly, you know, we had meetings every day um, where we were very open, we were honest, um, we discussed problems and issues, and it's just sort of been quite positive. And for me personally, you know, I talk to other peers, um, it's all about communication at the end of the day, um, and, and realising what you can do, what you can't do, um, and just sort of, as I say, working together, having that sort of team spirit um trying to keep that going at all times, doing, you know, looking after one another, um, praising, you know, when, when praise is due, um, looking at, you know, things that we could have done a little bit better. But um, at the end of the day, you know, it, it has been an extremely um, trying situation. And as I was saying, you know, not being able to control how, you know, certain things would transpire, you know, how... You know, yeah. it was an ever-changing environment, um, but but we did that, and I am, you know, I'm so proud of my team. And also, you know, at the end of the day, it was about me feeding back to them. I, you know, <clears throat> I gave them a token gesture of, of, of thanks, and then I also put something out to be quite fair on social media about how proud I was of every single one of those people. Um, and it's 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 things like that that you know the staff respected and thanked me for it's just little tiny tokens things like that that so if you acknowledge your staff and acknowledge what they do give them praise you know it's just about keeping the morale up and you know and they, and they deserved it and that's what i believe that you, as a manager and as a leader you should do that because mm. at the end of the day you know <clears throat> it's your staff and you need to be feeding back to them and and if they deserve that you know Times like this, where you know, um, finances have been you know, stretched, I think a few words can can make a hell of a lot of difference. Leaders have really had to be selfless during this time, and you you said already that the role of a leader is to give them that sort of direction and that reassurance. And it's natural mm-hmm. um, to look um, as an employee above you in the hierarchical ladder of a business or organisation for that sort of direction and reassurance when it's needed. But when you're sort of at the top of the tree in management, as it were, and there isn't really anybody above you to refer to, trying to provide all of that while having nobody to look to yourself and only having to look inside can often feel a little bit lonely, I suppose. At a time like this, uh, Joanne, where is it that you look to for that sort of inspiration that you're kind of on the right track, as it were? Yeah, well, I just reach out to people who, um, you know, I've known for a long time um, within healthcare, 
Um, I've also got, you know, other peers who are doing a similar job to me. Um, and it's reaching out to those people. It's been very, again, open and honest with us and discussing the issues that you've got. There's nothing more comforting than hearing that other people have got the same issues. And then it's working out how, you know, you both dealt with them. Um, you know, I'm a believer that, you know, you're never told to learn anything new. Um, and I'm quite open to that. And, you know, and I will also reach out and say, how would you have handled this situation? You know, this is how I handled it. And you can talk about it. Maybe it's something that you, you, you know, somebody may give you that sort of reassurance. Well, actually, I thought, you know, you handled that quite well. Um, and sometimes, you know, even senior, senior managers need that sort of feedback. Um, but it's, it's again, it's, it's the communication at the end of the day. There's no good sitting you know, somewhere quietly in an office or, or a clinic or wherever. Um, it, it's about having sort of that ability to just reach out sometimes and say, you know, perhaps in this time I needed a bit more reassurance, but I also needed to speak to other people to see if they were having the same issues and, and how, how they actually handle those issues. And again, you know, at the end of the day, maybe, you know, I can learn from um, taking some good points from how they've handled the situation and vice versa. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just about communication at the end of the day. And thinking now about the future, uh, Joanne, just before we do uh, wrap things up on the programme today, I'm interested to understand what you envision being on the horizon over the next 12 months for yourself and for Care Fertility and what you hope to achieve as we move through the pandemic into the new normal and just to the challenges that that's going to bring. Mm, I mean, our main priority is obviously um, getting through the backlog of patients that are built up that we had to put on hold uh, for the treatment. So what we did was we did a lot of preparation for that uh, and made sure that we, you know, we, we kept in contact with the patients at all times, that we'd set up spreadsheets so we knew exactly which patients were going to start treatment. Um, we, you know, worked different hours, we put on different days um, so that we sort of got the patients through as quickly as we possibly can. And it's extremely busy at the moment, uh, which is good news. But there are lots of things that we've learned during the pandemic. As I say, we've improved processes and we've fine-tuned we've that ability um, of having those few months of being able to fine-tune some of the processes that probably we, you know, we, we've not looked at for quite a long time. So we've improved those. We, we're now electronic. Um, again, that's a big improvement for us. And sort of looking to the future, um, we, you know, we just need to look at sort of um, and continue to look at all these processes that we've got in place uh, and to continue this sort of development at, at all stages and just look back and see how um, we sort of have managed the situation um, quite well, to be, to be honest, um, and look at the, the, the plus points and look at how sort of we can manage, you know, anything that, that comes forward to us in the future. Certainly seems like um, interesting times um, ahead, Joanne. And, you know, I think given how informative it's been having you come onto the programme to discuss your experience um, of the pandemic with us, I think it would be fantastic to catch up at some point in the next year just to see exactly how this new normal is shaping up and just how well things are getting on behind the scenes at Care Fertility as well as you adjust. 
yes, that, that would be absolutely great. I'd look forward to that. I would as well. It's been really insightful having you join us today, Joanne, as well as a real pleasure for myself and also for those tuning in as well. And most importantly, um, until we do hopefully speak again in future, do take care and do stay safe with all still going on because we still don't quite know which way this pandemic is going to go. So let's keep our fingers crossed. The trajectory is going to be only upward from this point. Thank you very much. and, And you take care as well. And for those tuning in, do continue to be sensible and look after yourselves, even with restrictions lifting, because it does make a real difference in keeping people safe and saving lives. Um, I was speaking to Joanne Roebuck today, Clinical Director at Care Fertility. And coming up next on the programme today, I'll be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with former Education Secretary Lord Blunkett. Lord Blunkett is today an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State and Chairman of the the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Now, despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most well-known politicians of his generation, holding a number of senior positions in Tony Blair's cabinet and serving as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was elevated to the House of Lords as Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough in August of 2015. And I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew relished the opportunity to speak with him. All of that is, of course, coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, Well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, which uh, we must touch on. Um, What would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks, those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and of course whether they can receive the the grant 10,000 or 25,000 all all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future but I think the second thing to say and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world and being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term uh, effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak Uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, mm-hmm. which will help with the recovery, whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, 
both between services and product productivity and, and uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're, we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who mm -hmm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from obviously government itself. And there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's a severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen, seen the same on the international scene for mm. all kinds of reasons, uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, a service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care uh, system, uh, the food chain and the like. Uh, but also, I think, in terms of seeing the, the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I, I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert. Mm -hmm. But actually, I think there is a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that, that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms 
about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent to the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and mm. consent that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead Mm. or people being told that they shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, The health secretary 
often chairs corporate meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a Secretary of State, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust, and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with, watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy. I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated, mm -hmm. scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. We did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. I, I think it would, people criticized the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. 
you deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. Um, These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself. Some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems. If that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously, we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety. We can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, now, it, it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be to prolonged? I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives for a variety of reasons are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the the immediate handling of the pandemic concentrating really hard on those affected by 
COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, Remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is led in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public, who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. And unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately get pushed further into the middle of the year in the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. 
Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are uh, the changes in the, uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government. And the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent a uh, professional lawyer who, as director of public prosecutions, led the service well, uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made shadow foreign secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, Labour, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition. More importantly, he will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did. And the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing, functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, there has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, what's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission Uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has 
Mr. Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learnt from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed as it did in the 1980s and early 90s to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Secure has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, the ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, the thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Blunkett. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. 
Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.